This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, welcome and thanks to everyone joining us today from all around the world. I'm Kim Tallbear, I'm Dakota, and I'm a citizen of the Sistan, Wapton, Oyate, and lands now occupied by South Dakota and by the U.S., I'm also from Dakota homelands, more recently known as the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, which, as you all know, are at the center of a world uprising against anti-Black racism and police brutality. And I'm hosting today's conversation. I'm a Canada Research Chair in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. So I'm coming to you today from beautiful Treaty 6 territory near the North Saskatchewan River Valley in what is today called Edmonton. This is a traditional gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples, including Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Nakota, Iroquois, Dene, Anishinaabe, and Inuit peoples. Nick Estes is calling in from Tiwa Territory, the place currently called Albuquerque, the historic crossroads of the Dene, Apache, Comanche, Ute, and Pueblo nations. And please consider following Red Nation, Haymarket, and Verso on their social media channels and signing up for their newsletters. I want to mention two important podcasts that we hope you will follow. Please check out the Red Nation podcast at soundcloud.com forward slash the Red Nation pod. And I'm also a regular panelist on the weekly media indigenous podcast hosted by Rick Harp. You can hear us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or by heading to mediaindigena.com. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Nick Estes. Nick is a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe, also in lands now occupied by South Dakota. He is assistant professor in the University of New Mexico's American Studies Department. In 2014, he co-founded The Red Nation, an indigenous resistance organization. In 2017 and 18, Nick was the American Democracy Fellow. That's ironic. <laughs> at the Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History at Harvard University. Nick's research engages colonialism and global indigenous histories with a focus on decolonization, oral history, U.S. imperialism, environmental justice, anti-capitalism, and the Ocheti Shakawin, which we will focus on today. Are we going to go to some announcements? I started doing uh, mutual aid when uh, my sister was still alive. Uh, she used to go to the streets and on Sundays I would go look for her and uh, make sure she had clean clothing, clean hygiene, something to drink. And I also enabled her to not get hangovers like TDs. So I would, alongside that, I would give her booze, like a uh, mixed drink just to, and then the rest of the day or however you can fend for yourself. But I started doing that. And then as I, as time went along, she started asking for more. Like, can you bring more sandwiches? Can you bring like two or three more? Or like, and that just got bigger and bigger because she had the homies on the streets. 
So um, Jasper and I, we just decided one day, like, why don't we just make a pot of stew, you know? So it started with um, do, making a pot of stew with some fry bread and um, just little tiny coffee cups from the dollar store with a lid and with fry bread. Um, we started taking that out. Sometimes it was burritos. It wasn't always the same thing, but um, we did it like every, I'd say like every, it was every Sunday, but ironically our, our feeds now are still on Sundays. Yeah. <laughs> with the, the Red Nation. Red Nation. Yeah. <laughs> it just transferred to something bigger and I prayed about this a long time ago that it would be on a big scale. It's amazing how it's transpired. It's crazy. So I first met Nick, I believe in 2015, at a writer's retreat in South Dakota, an annual gathering of the Oak Lake Writers. Uh, We are a group dedicated to defending and advancing Ocheti Shakoween, or Dakota, Lakota, and Nakota sovereignty, cultures, and histories. I remember that Nick and I shared a critical sense of Indigenous, particularly Ocheti Shakoween, resistance to U.S. nationalism and empire, including the imposition of heteropatriarchy onto our peoples. So Nick and I have had a lot to talk about since we first met five years ago. So I'm going to start out by asking some questions of Nick. And because I'm an academic, my questions are long. (laughs) I'll try to shorten them up where I can. So first one, and and all of these are contextualized within this moment that we're in this week and last week uh, with um, all of this really important and heartbreaking and inspiring uprising that's going on by people around the world. And so I want to talk to you Nick, about the idea of the quote-unquote terrorist. So I was watching a 2010 Amy Goodman Democracy Now! interview with the founder of Peace and Conflict Studies, that's Johan Galtung. And by the way, he predicted back in 2001 that U.S. empire would fall by October 2020, so it seems that we're right on track. Galtung has compared, he's compared U.S. discourse on terrorism as the U.S. itself wages war on nations globally with how the figure of the terrorist was invoked by the Germans when they occupied Norway during World War II. So Galtung was a child at that time and his father was in a concentration camp. And he explained in that interview that Goebbels actually referred to the Norwegian resistance movement as a quote unquote terrorist group. So in your book, Our History is the Future, you describe the No Dapel movement being portrayed by settler law enforcement as a quote, ideologically driven insurgency with a strong religious component, unquote. So can you talk about the effects of that discourse, perhaps the violent effects on the ground, and also as they might have produced solidarity on the No Dapel movement? And I'm obviously also thinking about what's happening in city, cities across the U.S. and around the world with the Black Lives Matter resistance. Right, right. I think you uh, accu- accurately pointed out on Twitter a couple of days ago, or maybe the last day, I can't keep track of time. It's really hard in this particular moment um, about the framing of the black led uprising as an uprising. Right. And especially in a place like Minneapolis, because that was what the Dakota uprising was actually called. It was called a, an, an uprising. It's now kind of called the U.S. Dakota War. Um, but one thing that's really fascinating about that particular uh, conflict or war was that it was waged um, primarily by uh, civilian settlers, right? An irregular army, the first kind of national guard actually arose out of crushing uh, indigenous self-defense, right? And if we think about how um, war and war making, especially within the U.S. kind of imperialist nation state, 
operates, it actually criminal, like its first step is to criminalize um, a self-defense and specifically criminalize black resistance and indigenous resistance. And if we look at something like the, the Declaration of Independence, um, I, I look at it as a counterinsurgency doctrine, you know, um, uh, above anything else, because it calls uh, the warfare that's committed on, on the frontiers by, quote unquote, merciless Indian savages. Right. And then also the fear of the king of England inciting insurrection amongst us, i.e. Uh, black slave revolts. Uh, so that in, in it's it's a kind of counter annihilation thesis, right? It's actually what the Nazis used against um, the communists at the beginning. They're saying we're going to exterminate the communists because of the horrors that were inflicted in 1917 by the the Bolsheviks in, in Russia, and then it became now we're going to exterminate the Jewish population because they, you know, it's a counter annihilation thesis. They're they're a kind of internal um, threat to us, right? And so. Looking at specifically this rhetoric of terrorists, right, it makes invasion look like self-defense in a way. And so it's important to think about the long history of the term terrorist and also thinking about it in terms of a longer history of counterinsurgency tactics deployed by uh, the U.S. Uh, kind of imperialist nation state. Um, and I think if the reason why I say this is, is that counterinsurgency, we can see it in this particular moment in time, doesn't have to be enacted just by like the police or the military, right? It is a military tactic. It is a policing tactic. But we see politicians saying, you know, things like, oh, there's outside agitators. Uh, we saw a similar kind of um, uh, rhetoric during Standing Rock or during the No Dapple uh, movement. Uh, oh, there's, you know, there is this, there's these outside agitators. There, you know, the, the hippies have taken over the camps. And there was truth. There was, I mean, let's be honest, there's truth to that. But it, it, what it was trying to do was delegitimize the movement itself and to say that, um, you know, try to take away the agency of indigenous people and specifically the Standing Rock tribe in like in, in, in leading this particular movement. Uh, and so we see this in this as a tactic right now as saying, oh, these outside agitators are coming in. Um, but I think we can also look uh, deeper at the history of the formation uh, of the U.S. military. And there's a really good book and everyone should go out and read it. As a historian, history is like a very conservative field, especially military history. Um, but there's a uh, uh, there's a military historian. I think he's I think he's he might still be an officer, um, but he wrote this book called The First Way of War, and his name is John Grenier. And he talks he writes specifically in this post 9-11 moment and talking about the irregular kind of warfare that the United States uh you know, began to engage in in the in the war on terror, and he said the origins of this actually begin um, with the formation of you know the first settler militias in the United States, and that irregular kind of warfare against this quote unquote terrorist enemy, this non-state enemy combatant who was the indigenous, right? Um, that really began the professionalization of the 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 U.S. Army, and we can see, like, even with the the adoption of the Second Amendment, which is enshrined as, as some kind of like religious covenant in this country, um, was a result of 
uh, indigenous resistance, successful indigenous resistance that pretty much annihilated the Continental Army um, right after the so-called Revolutionary War, right? Right after 1776, they tried to invade the Ohio River, River Valley. The Shawnee Confederacy, in alliance with other indigenous nations, lured the Continental Army uh, out there and literally defeated them, right? And so, I mean, just to be frank, just because you know, indigenous people uh, whooped ass against settlers. <laughs> These settlers, you know, had to draft a law to basically create a state sanctioned way to arm individual settlers to attack indigenous people, but to also prevent slave revolts. That's where the Second Amendment came from. That's where the militarization of settler society actually came from. It came from this counter annihilation thesis. And so that's really what I was I was getting at in this particular um, section of the book and thinking about the way that the U.S. I mean, there's there's one there's there's one aspect of it in the way that the U.S. war on terror kind of influences uh, U.S. policing. Right. And people say, oh, the war has come home. Not not quite. The war has always been home. Right. It, it has traveled abroad, but it never quite left the our, our homelands and Dakota homeland specifically. And so if we look at somebody or if we look at like the Dakota uprising and we look at the way that. Um, these National Guard units were formed um, and the the kind of campaigns that were waged by Sibley and Shelby, who led uh, the columns of vengeance. Right. Everyone looks at 1862 and kind of sees it as like, you know, beginning, uh, you know, in, in uh, early fall and then kind of ending at the beginning of, of winter. Well, actually, it continued well on to, into 1863 and 1864. Uh, we saw that with the, the, the Whitestone Hill massacre that happened not too far from um uh, Standing Rock itself, where a group of Dakota people who had fled, many of them hadn't even participated, had fled uh, and kind of allied with their their Western relatives, the Lakota people. They were just on a buffalo hunt camp. And these columns of vengeance had come into eastern the eastern part of South Dakota. And if you know anything about the eastern part of South Dakota, there was a there was a, a direct effort to actually prevent any kind of treaty negotiation for parts for them for most of what, uh, eastern South Dakota, and so that's why you have kind of very diminished, according to uh, state language, the diminished reservations of Yankton and uh, Sisseton Wapaton, uh, and this whole area that's basically stolen land because there's no title to it. It's literally squatters' rights. There was never really uh, a negotiation that happened between indigenous people and the state. On, on specifically in, in large portions of eastern South Dakota, but also in large portions of eastern um, uh, North Dakota. And this was partly because of these columns of vengeance had chased people out. They were literally just authorized to kill uh, anybody that they saw, um, you know, uh, as a potential kind of like threat or survivor from this particular U.S. Dakota war. And so when they, you know, they, they went down to um, this, a lot of this stuff isn't in the book. So you're getting a little bit extra, but this is some oral history. Actually, Elizabeth Cooklin told me this story. The, the town that I was born in was, is actually called Maha Tipi, which means like people who live in the earth or cave dwellers it has two meanings. The first meaning uh, the first story that I, that she told me was that when the Dakota people had fled, um, where Interstate 90 is now, it goes, you know, it's it's it was actually a, a, an indigenous trail, 
uh, system that went to the Black Hills and crossed the Missouri River at that specific point. It was later militarized by a trade fort, uh, Fort Kiowa, which is the famous fort in The Revenant, you know, with Dances with Bears when Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> drug himself after getting mauled by a bear to this fort, right? I totally um, cracked up in the film. And I was the only person in a pack theater in Edmonton <laughs> laughing. <laughs> but that's Chamberlain. That's Chamberlain. That's what Chamberlain, Chamberlain became. Yeah. <laughs> and like completely unrecognizable because of climate change, they had to film it like in, 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 uh, in the north. Yeah. In, in Alberta. But that landscape does doesn't look like that. There's no trees, you know, it's rolling hills. But so these Dakota survivors, um, some of them were my ancestors. Some of them were probably your ancestors as well, had come to uh, this particular location it, where Chamberlain is now. And if you, if you know anything about the geography, there's all of these bluffs, uh, these gumbo bluffs that you can see. And they actually hid in the side of those bluffs. And that's where it got its name because the, the, the columns of vengeance came uh, to Chamberlain and were searching for these Dakota survivors. And um, some of them went north, some of them went south to uh, the the Hongtawa, uh, nation and, you know, ended up kind of getting absorbed in there. Um, but some of them went north um, to the Hunkpapa uh, and some of the Lakota allies up north. And so they were hiding from General Sibley and Sully. And that, that name, the the place name became Makatipi or cave dwellers. Later on, when white people began to settle in that area, uh, Anglo settlers specifically, because the French had been there for quite a long time, um, they began building these sod houses and like the natives were like, what are you doing? Like, this is, this is a joke. You're not going to build houses here. And they said, no, we're going to do it. And so the first windstorm, you know, uh, in, in the winter came and just blew them all down. Right. And so then they began digging holes into the ground <laughs> and they were so pathetic. They're so like Ushika that yeah. we called that place like cave dwellers. Cause that's the, the people oh, who live there. Oh, that was their dugouts? That's yeah. Their oh yeah. Um, I was going to say, there's two things. Oh, shoot. Oh, oh, so if we can maybe come back to this at some point, the difference between settlers and newcomers. I've sure. been thinking about this a lot more since I have moved to lands now occupied by Canada, because there's, there is, I have a much better sense of the history up here of the difference between like people that came in and maybe not, not perfectly, of course, right? But uh, there were still nefarious dealings, but who married in more or made kin more versus those whose whose goal was explicitly to settle and replace. Mm. And I hear people going between the words settler and newcomer much more up here than I do uh, in the United States. And that's one thing. And then I was also going to say, I'm so impressed by your command of history. I'm not a historian, right? So I know these histories in broad strokes, but all of these details, it's fascinating. And I didn't know that, like I'm from Eastern South Dakota in part, I didn't know that's why we have all these checkerboarded reservations mm -hmm. because of what you're talking about, right? Um, so, uh, so I was thinking about that in relationship to your discussion of uh, outside agitators as well. So looking at what's going on in Minneapolis and St. Paul right now, because I'm just consuming uh, voraciously the news and the live feeds coming out of there. And I particularly stay away from mainstream media, but I've got a lot of friends and relatives in the Twin Cities. And I'm looking at Unicorn Ride. I'm looking at live feeds on their Facebook feeds out of, you know, from the protests. And, and it's amazing how the communities are coming together, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, indigenous activists and community people are supporting uh, the Black Lives Matter activists and, and resistance, the way community people, healthcare workers are coming out, people are feeding people, uh, they're really taking care of them. And yes, there there are these white supremacist, quote unquote, outside agitators coming in. But 
I'm really, the, the community is taking care of itself. And I have never been so inspired in my life that we do not need police. Mm-hmm. We can take care of ourselves and they don't keep us safe, right? So I was thinking about all of that as you're, as you're reciting this history. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's a really good point. We were joking earlier um, with, with some comrades who were just saying like, abolition is now like, it's like, it's the most pragmatic and like reasonable response in this particular moment. Uh, and they, and the way things are going by August, we were joking. It's like, uh, abolition is going to sound reformist. <laughs> well, and it's, and it's all, it's people from all walks of life yeah. to use a cliche, right? You know, um, I'm just, I'm so heartened. Uh, by what's going on. So maybe we can talk a little bit, even I could sit here and listen to you all day talk about this history, because of course, I know these landscapes, and these are my ancestors too, right? And when you have that kind of personal avenue into something, it really helps bring that alive. Um, But I'm really interested in hearing about the roles of other movements at Standing Rock, the the No Dapple um, effort. And so, you know, I know Black Lives Matter was there. I know that Idle No More, people from Idle No More were coming down and offering support and, and any other movements there might have been. Because that also, I think mainstream media did a terrible job of understanding the complexity of the kinds of solidarity and organizing that was happening there. And also the way, I know you can't talk about everything because we keep some things within community, but the way in which the people there on the ground were were governing and keeping things in check, right? Sure. Um, despite this dominant narrative that settler mainstream media has that, you know, the Indians can't take care of themselves, right? Uh, they're on the war path and they're uncontrollable kind of thing, or they're they're lost in the past, right? There was something much more dynamic and present happening there. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question because I think we see this kind of happening now where um, I think Bindaloria pointed this out in 1969 with Custer died for you sins. It's like everyone wants to be like the, the Indians have a lack of leadership. And so they, they're always looking for a leader like who's you, you know, take me to your leader. There is a meme floating around the Internet with a picture of Noam Chomsky or not Noam Chomsky, Christine Noam. <laughs> and she had a big like uh, Martian head. And it said, uh, take me to your chief, you know, because she doesn't even know she doesn't know Indian law. She doesn't know, you know, like who, who the real leader is. And this is it worked in our favor, but it's also worked uh, against us. Right. And I think the things that you pointed out, especially with like the organic response to crisis, proves several things. One, it proves that we don't actually need capitalism. Capitalism is completely anathema to human social relations and relations to like the non-human world. And in crisis situations, people don't begin to like, you know, like it's not like Hobbes, you know, um, kind of war. uh, I don't know. I can't remember the state of nature where it's war against all, you know, it's such a pessimistic uh, and like cynical outlook on like so-called human nature. Right. And that even that concept is very troubling. But what we see in these moments, whether it's at no dapple or whether it's in uh, the the Twin Cities right now is that in in crisis situations people come together right they become quote unquote the state the thing they begin doing the th- things that the state should have been doing in, to begin with they per- like we saw this in COVID nineteen here in the Navajo Nation for example the vast networks that are so organized around mutual aid uh, and, and indigenous people are fortunate in the sense that we have these kind of kin networks that are both uh, biological but also not biological and how you know how these clan systems and you know we call it Tiosh they call it clan down here are kind of set up uh and it's an organic response to um state violence but it's also it's just you know to for lack of a better term it's a survival response to centuries of of colonialism and genocide and i think um i think the question about uh the kinds of movements that showed up and and uh, arrived and were there and very present i would say that black lives matter 
probably more so than any other kind of movement, if you can really call it that, because it's a decentralized network, right? Um, was very profound. I remember I, I I I left the camps literally one day, and I I got on a plane and I started this. Uh, fellowship at the Newberry Library. I was really kind of kicking myself in the ass, you know, for having to leave. But as soon as I got off the airplane, and then, you know, God bless the Newberry Library, you know, it's a great place. <laughs> and the indigenous community in, in, um, in Chicago is amazing. It has this really beautiful history. As soon as I got off the airplane, I, I literally went to um, the Chicago Indian Center, which is it's it's moved locations. But Black Lives Matter was there. Right. They were organizing no dapple solidarity marches. And that community is very tight knit in that sense. And so what we see happening even in Chicago right now is a coordination between these these various movements. Um, so it's Standing Rock like taught us, but also Black Lives Matter, like the uprisings that happened in 2015 taught us these things. And I would say the conversations that are happening between black and indigenous communities and black indigenous Indigenous communities uh, is far more advanced than what's happening in the academy. These these are these are they're really pushing kind of the envelope and thinking about and theorizing um, what it means to be you know a, a black person with indigenous ancestry, but also to be somebody who's connected to this place and belongs here just as much as indigenous people do. But to also understand the intricacies of those kinds of kinship relations between black and indigenous people, but also the disconnects. And the internalized, you know, anti-indigenous sentiment, but also the internalized anti-black sentiment, right, within both communities. And so, like, those conversations were really amazing. And I, I listened to some organizers from St. Louis talk about this Um who were involved in the Ferguson uprising and just talking about like, they had no idea that that was the, the kind of the central hub, the urban hub of indigenous, of, of indigenous civilization uh, in North America, that Cahokia yeah. existed there and that there was this vast array of, of mound cities. Uh, they call them mounds. It's just like a completely derogatory term. They're actually structures, they're buildings and how, when the settlers came or when, you know, when Western civilized so-called Western civilization came, they leveled these mounds and they used them to make roads. They used literally, and many of them were burial mounds, you know, and so they literally ground up the bones of indigenous people to create like these large, uh, you know, um, transcontinental railroad systems or uh, use them as gravel for the highways that were built. But not only that, the and you can read Walter Johnson's book, um, The Broken Heart of America, which is about the history of St. Louis, where he's one of the few scholars who talks about the histories of racial capitalism in conversation with settler colonialism and seeing the displacement of, of an urban uh, uh, black community as, as a kind of longer trish, uh, tradition of removal uh, of indigenous people. But those conversations were happening be yeah. between Ferguson uh, organizers and it really carried over. The one, one last thing I want to say is that the um, the other thing that was kind of missed, I think, by the mainstream media, and I, I wish I would have touched on it a, a bit more in the book, was uh, all of the all of the solidarity um, delegations that came from the South, uh, specifically uh, Indigenous Latin Americans, right? Uh, people who were in, Indigenous living in Latin America, I should say, who came from the South, who saw like who are just deeply touched by this, right? And I think a lot of people forget that indigeneity is like a very complex term. It means many, it means a million different things, right? To a, 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 a variety of different people. And I think about like just the human diversity of indigenous people in that encampment who were, you know, planted their flag there, those nations. Um, and you think about like the detention centers um, that are housing migrant children, 
most of them are indigenous and in Spanish is like their second language and their indigenous language is their first language. And so like the inability to just recognize like human diversity and human cultural diversity in that sense uh, is is a failure of the settler state, right? And we see it on the ground as indigenous people and, indig- and people are engaged in this, but those are just two things that kind of stuck out to me when you when you asked that question. Yeah. Well, I mean, this settler perspective is, is very much, especially in the United States. I mean, I think race changes in its uh, definitions and the way that it's it's categorized in different parts of the world, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a global phenomenon, but it also, it changes from nation to nation depending on its particular history and demographics. And that's the inability of, of mainstream settler viewpoint in the United States and Canada as well, probably to see, um, they don't see peoples, right? And that's what I'm really interested in, how peoples capital P come together. And and one of the, they see race instead, which it's not that we're not racialized, we're racialized, we don't get to opt out of that in those, mm-hmm. in those ra- racist dynamics. But we're also peoples at a different level, right, coming out of particular histories and cultures with particular languages and, and worldviews. Uh, and that's something that's been really interesting to me, although I haven't really had time to explore it. But I am really interested in... Um, and I think I said this in the piece I wrote in the other book you co-edited with uh, Jess and Dylan, the Standing with Standing Rock book. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get a chance to pursue it, but I am—I was really interested in in what was shared and articulated between, say, what's happening in Black Lives Matter and the kind of people that founded that. So I've really noticed that it's been women, queer, and two-spirit people, mm-hmm. right, who often led the way in these, if you don't want to call them movements, what did you call it, a net, uh, network of what? A decentralized network. A decentralized network, yeah. Um, I'm not a social movement scholar either, so my words might be a bit clunky. But I've been really interested in the way that, because uh, I view the indigenous movements, Idle No More and No Dapple, mm-hmm. as also caretaking kin, in addition to doing all of these other things. And I've been wondering about Black Lives Matter, right? And I've been meaning to do more reading and and understand what is the ontology underlining that as well, because I know I probably have a pretty, pretty shallow understanding of that if I only think of it as anti-racist, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I I was really influenced by uh, Kiangi Yamada Taylor's book oh, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Um, I but uh, I follow them on Twitter. Awesome. Yeah, and there was uh, Patrice Khan uh, Coolers had a memoir that came out as well. But I've also read uh, I follow Zoe Samutzi on on Twitter. I, I read a lot of their work. Um, and you know, to be honest, I can't really like weigh in on like the yeah. the internal dynamics of Black Lives Matter. I just kind of I kind of uh, view it. But one thing I will say, and this is something, you know, we were talking about this offline and I was thinking about this as we were talking, is that if you think about the discourse and I, I hate I hate that word for very for various reasons, but the discourse of anti-blackness and white supremacy and, and specifically in this country, in this nation, in the United States. Uh, and you think about social movements and how like even the kind of ideas, the Marxist analysis of class and whatever and class consciousness the discourse around anti-blackness and white supremacy has lit, raised the level of class consciousness in this country alone about the inequalities around capitalism and colonialism, like far more than any other movement in history. And I, I mean, it's not to say like we're not comparing like we're not comparing like movements like what's more successful or not. But the it, you have white kids in the streets who are moved by this and they should be outraged. Right. And you have but like it's it's. It's, it's crystallized around this particular moment and thinking about how this generation of young people has survived murder after murder after murder and imprisonment of black 
people like on the street every day. It's like a new hashtag. And on top of that, they've survived two economic recessions. The first one in 2008, which we didn't even fully recover from uh, when we went into the COVID crisis. But now we're in another economic recession. 30 million people are are, uh, upwards to 40 million people are laid off. And that doesn't even include the, the informal economies. But the it was the the crystallization of of this particular movement and what we're seeing right now was was raised by uh, black intellectuals and black theorists specifically and black social movement people and so we have to give credit to them because they're really like the tip of the spear in this particular moment in time okay so i think maybe I'm so busy listening to you. <laughs> I'm trying to think about which question I was to ask first. Um, and we are already getting audience, uh, viewer, listener questions. So we'll, we'll come to those two in, in a little bit. Um, so I, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about theory, and we've already started doing that. So when I was really watching a No Dapple and Idle No More, and again, Black Lives Matter, but since I'm not Black, I have less insight into what's cultural insight, I think, into what's going on, although I understand the structural racism critiques pretty well. But when I'm watching these these movements, um, especially with No Dapple and Idle No More, I have not primarily thought of them as activists or environmental movements, as I think I said earlier. I followed them again, having women, queer, and two-spirit leadership, as in doing, do, and I follow them as doing important indigenous theoretical and caretaking work. Um, but I often see settler media portray them as indigenous rights or environmental justice. And I, and I saw some argument, not only in mainstream media, but also in indigenous media, between what should be foreground indigenous rights versus environmental justice. And I find that dichotomy a not very indigenous relational way of looking at things. Um, Because I, again, if you go back to this caretaking, to being water protectors and land protectors, this is about self-governance. It's about governance and self-determination. It's also about caring for our other than human relatives as part of caring for our, our human relatives. And so I was wondering, so I had that aha moment in watching, watching what was going on at, at, uh, at No Dapple. I was, it really furthered my relational thinking. It made me dig back into uh, Dakota and other, especially prairie indigenous books and articles uh, to think with. And so I'm wondering if you have a couple examples of aha moments that you experienced in the camps at Standing Rock in terms of analytical insights you received from elders, but also from youth, because you named specifically youth leaders mm-hmm. uh, in the camps. And I've been really inspired by that too. I mean, the the people that I think really have their finger on the pulse of what's going on and have vision, not that they're going to save us, but that they have, I think, sometimes more vision and a better grasp on reality are our young people, right? Young thinkers and theorists that are not even just mostly in the academy, but, but that are out in the streets. So did, what were your insights that you got from them? Yeah, I think like this gets into this question, but it was it happened on Monday when I was out uh in a demo here, uh, Black Lives Matter demo in Albuquerque. And I saw a lot of my students from my classes <laughs> marching with me. And I, I get this weird feeling because I like, I, you know, like, I, I don't know, it's not like a patriarchal thing, but I like, I want to protect them, you know, like, I like, oh no, like what's going to happen? But then I'm like, they probably know, they have a better understanding of what's going on than I do. And maybe I should just be listening to their experiences. And they and can I had that faster than you do with yeah. all their stuff. <laughs> yeah, they're better at Twitter and like Facebook. I'm just, I, I can't cuss, but I'm an S poster, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> you can fill it up, you can figure it out. But um, the, 
when I was a Standing Rock, the same thing happened to me. I remember we were marching in a, a police line and it was all uh, Two-Spirit and, uh, uh, you know, uh, queer femme folks who were leading the march. And some of them were my students. And I was like, I was like, I actually, I mean, it was this moment where I was like, I actually don't know what's up. Like, I mean, I, I think I'm like, I think I know what's up, but I actually don't know what's up. And um, it was a moment when like, I, I just sat and I mean, most of the time I didn't even talk at the camp. I spoke once maybe publicly and I just sat and listened. And, um, you know, one of the elders was, gave this really good, great advice. He's, he's like, shut your mouth, <laughs> open your eyes and open your ears. Um, and that's really what I, I did is I just observed. And there were, um, there was this moment in time where they had set up uh, a two spirit. There was a, there was the two spirit camp, two spirit nation um, that Kitty brings plenty um, really led, but there was an, there was other kind of like informal camps where, you know um, there, I mean, they, like, like any revolutionary movement, like any revolutionary moment, you're trying to work out these contradictions of heteropatriarchy. Right. And so there was another camp that was kind of like, and I didn't know I was sitting in the camp. I was like, Hey, my friends are over here. And they called it the moon camp, which you can obviously derive meaning from that as people who are on their moon, uh, but it was primarily for um, uh, queer folks and, uh, and gender nonconforming folks. And I had no idea that I was sitting there, but their their level of analysis, even around the the, the question of like skirts, because, you know, people want to wear skirts in, in ceremony and how they don't identify as, you know, they don't identify as masculine or feminine in specific ways. And um, it was it was an aha moment for me and like how. Um, I met some people who had, you know, who were actually from Standing Rock, um, who had never, who had left when they were young people because of the the discrimination they had faced, but they came back to the camps and it was their like coming home. Right. And so, uh, that was one thing that really stuck out to me. Um, and like, I think with the youth, the youth folks, like, especially like with Bobby Jean, three legs, um, and, uh, um, Joseph White Eyes. Joseph White Eyes was a student of mine. I also worked with him for a bit. Uh, they they led the 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 runs, the thousand mile relay runs that happened to, uh, you know, that went from Standing Rock all the way to Washington D.C. And you know, Hillary Clinton, you know, uh, refused to meet with them. All of these things. They wrote letters to Obama. You know, it's important to remember that, like, sometimes we we you know we we have developed politics and we're, we're a little bit more cynical about the, the process of the so-called liberal democracy, right? You petition Obama, you petition Hillary Clinton or whatever. Um, and they were going through that. They were developing in that moment. It was really beautiful to see because they were the ones that really spearheaded it. And they're the ones that really took it to places that I, I couldn't even have imagined, you know? Um, and there were thousands of them. And you can't take that experience away from all those thousands of people. And they're going to be like, you know, they're going to level up so much uh, and, and just and they, I'm sure they have leveled up so much in this moment in time that we, we haven't even reaped the benefits of, of this particular moment in time. We are kind of starting to see it. But um, another moment uh, happened when Faith and I was talking to Faith Spotted Eagle and she works with a lot of um, suicide prevention uh, folks in any Hongtawa territory. And she was talking about how I can't remember the exact date, but um, she was talking about how um, in the winter months specifically youth suicides are are really high. And uh, and down where she's from, they didn't have any youth suicides. Uh, and this was, it, I guess, what she attributed it to was um, the fact that they had this camp going. There was an alternative. Right. And if we think of all of the programs that exist, right, this happened in Ferguson as well. The gang prevention programs to get the gangs, you know, um, to stop fighting and to, you know, 
whatever it is they're trying to do, but it took the uprising to unite these communities. And, you know, we have all these, you know, God bless them, right? The, all these, um, these uh, suicide prevention programs that are for native youth, but it actually took the coalescence of an uprising and the the kind of refoundation of like an indigenous governance structure to bring a kind of pride back that you that isn't really calculable, right? There's an intangible element, a psychological element to that that you can't really define, right? And again, we we're, we're going to be reaping the benefits of this in the generations to come. Yeah, I remember Faith Spotted Eagle saying, and I think she was even in a CNN report, and she was talking about what this was doing for youth uh, at Standing Rock, and and that this is the way that they wanted to live, and they had never imagined living like that, right? And this is the way that our ancestors lived. And I was also uh, in the live feeds coming out of South Minneapolis this last week, uh, young people really, I mean, obviously led and centered uh, by on black people, but it was also, South Minneapolis is a really racially diverse area, heavy indigenous population, Latinx population, both African-Americans and newer newcomers from uh, say Somalia as well, right? Um, And Southeast Asia. So it's a really incredibly diverse area. And people were saying there is solidarity on these streets. We are supporting each other. It was amazing. Unicorn Riot was interviewing a lot of youth and you got to watch it for a couple hours, right? Uh, Because you get some, you know, youth out there doing their young people thing, but really also incredibly profound analyses, really critical. Um, And where else are you going to get something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really it's really important for the future. So I so we're already um, I think into my final question, and we've got uh, viewer and listener questions coming in that I think are articulating with what my final question was as well. Um, I often cite uh, Rob Ennis's book, uh, Elder Brother and the Law of the People. And Rob is a professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Saskatchewan. And, and his book was, uh, I think it came out in 2013, maybe. Uh, 2014 was an aha moment, uh, one of those aha moments for mm-hmm. me. So Rob is the person that... Uh, for me, talks about a nation versus kinship, and in our case, Oyate. And so um, when I read his book, because he really advocates, it's not that we don't have these nation-to-nation relations, both between indigenous peoples and with other peoples, including uh, these settler colonial governments, but that we shouldn't overplay that uh, and downplay uh, the way that kinship structures and rules helped us relate with one another and with newcomers. Mm-hmm. And I remember after reading his book, I, I went back and reread the history of my ancestor, my four greats grandfather, Little Crow or Te Oyate Duta. And it, ho- it had always been interesting to me because I grew up hearing a lot of stories, oral history about him, but also reading settler and Dakota written histories about him. And it was always a little confusing to me how he was so uh, intent on maintaining Dakota ways of life in some ways, but then he conceded, like cut his hair, mm-hmm. agreed to go to church, but he kept, he kept, uh, he had four wives. He was not willing to forego that kinship structure. And, and after I read Rob's book about, uh, making people familiars or kin in order to relate. I had a much better understanding of what Little Crow was doing, I think. Um, it had always seemed strange to me, but of course I'm living in the 20th or the 21st century, right? Looking back with all that hindsight, you know, why would you try to make kin out of these violent, greedy settlers? But he and Dakota people and other prairie indigenous people had been making kin with other newcomers for quite a while mm-hmm. before 1862 when that uprising happened. And so this also, I'm going to segue to a question out of that. 
Um, and this is overlapping with, uh, I think, what Christina Schull is is asking, one of the listeners. Uh, they say, my students often ask how disparate movements, environmental, indigenous, black, migrant, can see each other and work together better. And then my question was, what lessons are there in those kinship imperatives that we that you talk about and you end your book with them? Mm-hmm. Uh, what lessons are there for this moment and how people can organize in solidarity? And maybe, I don't know if I've already asked you that question. You did ask me that question, but I think I didn't quite answer. Oh, good. Well, can you answer it? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's a, it is a really great question. And I, to be, I'm familiar with Rob's work, but I haven't read the book. And I actually am going to go read it because this is something that I'm interested in. And I, I guess I've read it through your work because yeah. I actually gained kind of insight about caretaking relations specifically from you, Kim. Actually, that's the primary source of influence. So you've helped yeah, me think and about it. He's a it. big influence for me. So yeah, I think that's one of the most under talked about books in indigenous studies. And it's, I think it's really important. So yeah, people should read it. So that, yeah, like, I, I guess, um, you know, like the word, I guess the, the language of like Lakota, Dakota actually comes from, you know, Kola or friend or ally. Right. And it means, you know, it means a lot of things, but that's one of the things it's how, how do we make relations? And, um, I think with your, your personal story, your personal history with your grandfather, Little Crow, Ta'oya Te Duta, uh, is really fascinating because I always think about my, um, you know, is, we, we're like in my family, there's like a lot of men for whatever reason. Um, it's not like we were patriarchal. It's just that there's always like my grandfathers, there was five of them. Right. And there were no, uh, there were no sisters, <laughs> but so I learned a lot of the history from them and from their lives. And, you know, my grandfather, um, Andrew or Brown, he was a lay reader in the Episcopal church. Uh, but his brothers were like ministers in the church and, but they were also like traditionalists in the same sense, you know, they would, they all like at one point in time, like when they would talk, they would only speak Lakota to each other and they refused to, you know, define anything for us. So we just sat there listening to them, not understanding what they would say, but later on in life, um, you know, I really kind of gained an appreciation, uh, for what they were actually doing. I mean, in one way they were translating and I'm not a Christian, like I don't pretend to be one, but they were translating, um, Lakota into like Christian, you know, like the Bible and things like that and Psalms and some of the songs with what they were doing is they were preserving the language. And that's actually where I learned most of my Lakota was through the church, whether, you know, whether I like it or not. Um, And when I was talking to my uncle about this, I was like, why, you know, like my grandfather, like, you know, kind of renounced, you know, a lot of things in life later on when he was on his deathbed, like, why would he, why would he do this? And he was like, because he wanted to preserve uh, he wanted to pray to his his own creator. He wanted the language to be there, right? And for him, it wasn't becoming so much as a Christian as it was to continue on. And we see this with somebody like Nicholas Black Elk as well, who's the Catholic Church is now trying to make a saint. The irony behind it, though, is that the miracles, because you have to have like two miracles. The irony is that the two miracles that he performed were before he was a Christian. He performed them as a Lakota medicine person. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Jokes on you guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I don't want to interrupt you. Are, are oh yeah, I was going. I was yeah. You're like, are you going to make a point? Um, the point that I, I was trying to make though is that like uh, I I've gained an appreciation and a respect in looking back at our ancestors and why they did certain things. Like why you know um, kin kinship was also a tool, right. That we had, uh, to even, even to deal with outsiders. Right. 
Um, and to get the, the, the question that was asked earlier about this kind of idea of disparate struggles between black indigenous environmental movements, uh, we need to like disabuse ourselves of that language uh, because the environmental justice movement is often seen as, and I've, I've hesitated even calling myself uh, an environmentalist for a long time because it's so dominated in, in, in a kind of settler framework of like, it's easier to imagine, you know, uh, a post-carbon future than it is the end of settler colonialism. And I find that a problem, right? Um, but I think what also happens is that we, as like Black and Indigenous people are trained within these frameworks to speak to this kind of like this white audience, right? That's not, that kind of misses the connections and the conversations that we should be having. Uh, and I learned that from being here in Albuquerque because we have a lot of Chicano organizers who are at the forefront of environmental justice movements and they don't care about the, you know, the kind of like white supremacy that's dominating the environmental justice movement. And they've taught me a lot and I've learned a lot. And so thinking less about uh, you know, police violence is an environmental justice issue, in my opinion. So, you know, so too is colonization. Like, um, we have to expand our frame. Abolition is is should be a demand of environmental justice. Uh, demilitarization should be fundamental. It should be the first thing that we should be talking about, especially since the United States military is the number one, you know, polluter on the planet, but also maintains this kind of like fossil empire of uh, of extraction. So are there any other, I have some more announcements to make sure. and then we can go to uh, to viewer questions, but are there any other uh, really key points in your book that you want to touch on before we move on to those other items? Um, I, I don't, I can't really think of any off the top of my head. I'd, I'd like to maybe just move on with the questions. Okay. Okay. So uh, before we get to some of the audience questions, I want to let everyone know about two upcoming events in this live stream series. On June 4th, Aziz Rana, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, talks to Daniel Denvir about his new Verso book, All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. On June 11th, Haymarket is hosting the Penn Prison Writing Awards live release event. You can register for both events on Eventbrite. Okay, let's go to some of the other questions I didn't get to. The first one is Julie from Chicago asks, uh, she says, Kim, they say, Kim mentioned the discussion around newcomers and settlers. Uh, can you expand on that a bit more and how it relates to the project of building solidarity among diverse groups? I don't know. I think that question came in after we talked about it a second time. I think um, I think you should answer that question because oh, I... I that? Yeah, I'm not really familiar. I'd actually like to hear you. Yeah, part. I mean, I, I'm taking that from it's not something I've studied so much, but it's something I'm taking from the way conversations happen up here north of the 49th parallel Right? People tend to use the word newcomer more. And I think it's because we've had pretty robust discussions up here about the term settler and who that does not does and does not apply to. And I think those conversations have, haven't happened quite as extensively in the U.S., in part because the word settler doesn't get invoked as much down there. Um and so one of the things I often say when I give talks is I don't really worry about who's a settler and who's not. I worry about all of our complicity in settler colonial structure, and we're all capable of being complicit in and upholding that, right? Um, and so I do appreciate it when people will identify themselves as a settler, as I hear you know, some white Canadians do, because it tells me they've thought about it and they've thought about their role in settler colonialism. I also hear some other racialized people up here, uh, which is the way it gets talked about, other quote unquote visible minorities, 
So, for example, I have quite a few South Asian feminist friends who will identify as settlers. Uh, but really thinking about having come from places of privilege. You know, these are not refugees, right? These are people who came with a certain degree of privilege. So that's the kind of conversation people are having. But then I think the word newcomer tends to get used when it's trying to acknowledge that people that have and continue to come here that are not necessarily falling into that settler category. And so I take the, that difference in terminology. And when I went back and and, and thought after I read Rob Innes's book, um, and I went back and thought about the history of our own people, of Dakota and Lakota people, I really began to think about the difference between newcomers who came in, perhaps, and joined our kinship structures, and those who, again, as I said, came and settled with the intent to replace and to, frankly, wipe out our cultures, right? Mm-hmm. So... But how, then they then they ask, how does this relate to the building of solidarity between diverse groups? I mean, it's it, yeah, it's it's hard. It, I I just just had an answer to it, and it just like went out of my mind. But um, I think like because I, I was listening to you, I was like, I'm now my mind is thinking about this more. Um, I guess like I, the the project that I'm I'm working on as a long term project is to. Think about like even my own my own family, for example, uh, I began looking at my own family and studying it. My mom's white. My dad's indigenous. Right. Um, and looking at my dad's side of the family, um, we had actually intermarried. We had welcomed in uh, a lot of black relatives. Many of them were deserters from the military. My grandmother's father was was uh, was part black. Uh, he, he, you know, he was a product of of a marriage. Right. That had happened. And so um, that was something that wasn't really acknowledged. and. It, it it never it doesn't change anything for me. I, I never grew up with that experience, but I understand that like there is like there is something different about you know even though this person came out to the West um, ostensibly as as part of this you know occupying army, um, you know became kin. And how did that happen? You know, I, I don't have any answers to that right now. I'm, this is something that I'm trying to work on in my in my in some new work that I'm thinking about, because I don't I don't have answers to it, and I don't. It's not just like a personal experience that is going to explain all of these things. But I think a lot of us have those have those kind of attachments and have those kinds of histories um, that I don't think we should shy away from. But I do think I do agree with the the intent, right? The intent to destroy to replace, right? Uh, if you're invested in the settler colonial project and and specifically in this country and like the two party system, it's part of the problem. I mean, we, it it just oscillates to varying degrees of uh, settler intensity, right? Settler colonial intensity. Those aren't really options. Right. And so I think we actually have to create um, an alternative. And I I see this particular moment um, because I hear a lot of uh, I hear a lot of black organizers using the language of settler colonialism and they understand the state as, as a settler state, not in the same way that indigenous people would, but they understand the relationship to it and that they're, they themselves are colonized as well. Um, I also think that like we have to talk about the larger structure of capitalism and thinking about how capitalism colonized Europeans first. Right. Um, it it 
even if you talk about like the the relations between uh, uh, so-called races, right, are the creation of a racial hierarchy arose when Europeans colonized themselves first, right? They created the Irish and the Slavs were at the bottom, right? They were the immigrants that everyone employed. They had the worst jobs, et cetera, et cetera. They achieved parity and through whiteness when they came as kind of the surplus population that was removed from their own homelands uh, during the enclosures that were happening in Europe. And so they became the cannon fodder for, for, for settlement in this, in this particular country doesn't excuse the horrific violences that had happened, but it under puts it into perspective that these things, you know, capitalism colonized Europe first, and then it was exported to the rest of the world. Yeah, you do a good job in your book of talking about how uh, capitalism and, and colonialism and settler colonialism are twinned, right? Mm -hmm. And I often don't mention capitalism because I haven't studied. I mean, I'm, I was a terrible Marxist cook. PhD <laughs> <laughs> advisors will tell you. I'm <laughs> like that's white stuff. Not that we don't read a bunch of other white stuff too, right? But, but, uh, but for me, it does go hand in hand. I just mm -hmm. can't articulate it. And I really appreciated that about your book, right? That you you remember um, that those things are important. And I forgot what else I was going to say. Now there's it's like you. There's so many things I, I want to say. Well I think like one thing, I mean, just like class is important. Class is fundamentally about power. It's not just about what salary you you earn. It's not this kind of static thing, right? And even if you think about um, the creation of like gender roles and the gender division of labor, that's also about class power. Uh, the, the relation between indigenous, you know, and settlers about class power. Um, those, uh, so we actually need to be more expansive and, and not so narrowly defined about how we're thinking about class. And it doesn't just happen between individuals, it happens on larger scales. Like the United States is colonizing, you know, is an oppressor nation to other other nations in the world. And that is in itself is a macro class relation. Right. And so that's a, that's the that's the Marxist in me coming out. <laughs> but, well, but as you say, I mean, the what's going on, uh, Black Lives Matters, theoretical interventions have highlighted that you said is that what you said as much mm -hmm. or more than any any movement to date. Yeah, it's raised the level of class consciousness mm -hmm. in this country more so than any other movement. It's raised my class consciousness, too, and I thought I was pretty conscious. So, yeah, I'm like, wow. So you say people get more conservative as they get older, not me. I'm getting more <laughs> radical <laughs> because of these young people. Like, you have to – I don't know. You have to, like um, – what's the word I've been using? Um, get a little – more courage. They raise the bar. Right. They really raised the bar. So I'll go. So I'll go to another uh, viewer question. Uh, can we talk a little bit more about the role of the Standing Rock protests or you, we might take issue with that word? What kind of watershed that moment was in the history of uh, indigenous resistance and how it affected the movement going forward? Mm. That's a good question. Um, I would say that Standing Rock actually needs to be put into a constellation of different struggles. You had Mauna Kea, you have uh, Wet'suwet'en, you had the anti-KXL pipeline struggle. Um, and a lot of those struggles that I just named are actually ongoing to this day. And so, uh, so too with the No Dapple movement and my argument, you know, and, and I would argue it's still ongoing. It's still being like the courts still haven't decided the legality. <laughs> like. I mean, as if that really mattered, but I understand the importance of of, of fighting these things out in, in the court. Um, so in many ways, it was part of this constellation. And there's a good book on or a good uh, issue from the Decolonization uh, Indigeneity uh, Education Society written by Kucha uh, Rizling Balding and uh, Melanie Yazi on 
the politics of water and how that discourse of like water protector, water is life uh, became like they locate it within these indigenous movements. And they say like, you know, Standing Rock was kind of this this kind of um, crescendo of this particular moment in time and that it arose out of a long, you know, it didn't just appear out of nowhere. Right. And so in that sense, it's a moment within a larger movement of history, but it's also a movement within a moment in history, if that makes any sense. Um, and I think that it's, it's important not to bookend it with things because that's what I try to show in my book is to look at it as part of this long, uh, tradition of indigenous resistance specific to the Ocheti Shakoi, uh, and not necessarily just kind of like something that appeared out of nowhere. Right. Um, it has historical origins and we have to give credit to those historical origins. And I think we're seeing the echoes of it in this particular moment in time, both in the, the response by the police, because many of those police who are in Minneapolis right now got most of their training, uh, or actually were deployed in, in standing rock, um, to, to, uh, against water protectors. And now they're being uh, deployed against people who are, you know, fighting against police violence. You know, one of the things your book did for me, and I'm probably not remembering it um, quite as incisively as the thought first occurred to me, and I know all this history, as I said, in broad strokes, right? I don't know it at the level of detail you do as a historian, but it really drove home for me, so it must have for non-Indigenous people, this idea that this wasn't a sort of breakdown in liberal U.S. democracy. This is not a turning point or a new moment. This is a continuation of the way that the U.S. established itself. This is... It just revealed that this is the way the state is and the way mm. it's supposed to be, the way it was always intended to be. And those are the similar kinds of analyses are coming out of this moment with Black Lives Matter as well, mm. right? And so I just remember thinking, wow. <laughs> well, what, what Obama, I think Obama's giving a speech today or something, like reflecting on this moment. And somebody had posted a, a picture of like, this is Trump's America and it has this line of riot police. And somebody responded, some native person in the comment responded, this is Obama's America and it had the line of riot police at, uh, north of Standing Rock <laughs> lined up. Yeah, no, and I'll, I'll, which takes me to another question that's in part about uh, former President Obama. And I, uh, Facebooked maybe the other day um, that because Obama released, I, there was some report in Newsweek about him saying, have hope and yeah, you can protest, but vote too. Some kind of typical, you know, uh, middle of the road Democratic Party kind of response. Um, and I said, yeah, I'm waiting for uh, Obama to like be doing COVID approved fist bumps with <laughs> cops taking fake knees, you know, please. So I'll go to the next question. <laughs> So um, one of the themes of Nick's book is the importance of remembering and learning lessons from our own history. This seems crucial when the political mainstream in the U.S. is so good at actively stealing, distorting and erasing any elements they find inconvenient or even dangerous. Can you talk about how that process is going on in the present? For example, in the way there is a seeming a gap in understanding around the fact that it was Obama who oversaw the repression of the protests at Standing Rock. I don't know. Do you feel like you have anything more to say on that? I guess I know. I mean, I think I kind of answered it. I would say though that like it's important to remember, like, it, like there's so much that's happened. It's like you could write several books just based in the last six months, right? Um, one thing that was really fascinating is the price of oil like dropped, right? It, I think it, at one point it became a negative. Um, but it's important to remember that under like the Obama administration, 
the the kind of aggressive fracking revolution that we see uh, happening is like here in the southwest, uh, up north in in the northern plains uh, near the the Bakken kind of region. But then uh, even 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 though it's not fracking, it's the same kind of dirty processing of of oil in the the Alberta tar sands um, region. You see domestic oil production increase eighty percent in Obama's terms, right? You also see the rise of emissions from public lands. And when Trump came into power, you know, you know, Obama's whole thing was energy independence, right? Um, we're going to get and we're going to get off dirty oil. We're going to implement sanctions against Iran. Further ones, you know, more harsh ones, more genocidal ones than the previous administration. We're also going to implement more sanctions against Venezuela because Venezuela had to uh, refine its oil here in in the Gulf of Mexico in the United States uh, because it was disallowed the kind of technology to build its old oil refineries. This isn't a defense of the extractive industry, but thinking about like oil economies and colonialism, the Obama administration specifically targeted Venezuela as like the reason why we have to begin fracking, the reason why we have to develop this dirty oil is so that we can get off this, this socialist oil, right? And and I think somebody like Winona LaDuke was actually on the front lines, like Amy Goodman was following her around, you know, God bless Amy Goodman, and following her around with the microphone and was asking her to comment. And, you know, Winona LaDuke was like, you know, this is about sanctions against, this is, this is the kind of, this is what happens to indigenous people. Um, when sanctions are implemented on Venezuela, they got to get that oil from somewhere and they're going to get it from indigenous lands and our lands are going to be sacrificed. And so Obama had energy independence and Trump, you know, unleashed, quote unquote, unleashed American energy dominance on the world, right? Where he has the oil man, you know, Mike Pompeo out there, he, Mike Pompeo got his, his right, you know, all the, the entire Department of Interior, and this isn't like an anomaly, is like all oil people. Um, Tara Sweeney was, you know, an oil person, an oil lobbyist. She's the Secretary or, uh, Secretary of Indian Affairs. Um, Burkhart, the new guy, the new Secretary of Interior is an oil lobbyist. The last guy was an oil lobbyist, right, from the top, from the top down. Americans' foreign policy is to secure uh, America's like dependence on fossil fuels, but also its its role in those fossil fuels, and so we can see the pipeline struggle uh, in 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 Wet'suwet'en territory, in the Bayou Bridge, or in in Standing Rock, as an anti-imperialist struggle that's really challenging for U.S. foreign policy as much as it's challenging Indian policy, as much as it's challenging these these extractive projects. So is that in part an answer to the next question? Uh, Salvatore De Rosa asks, how can we turn the struggle against fossil fuels and climate breakdown into a platform for convergence of justice movements? I think it already is um, in many ways. Uh, like I, I make this argument over and over again, and I don't know if it's resonating with people, but you know, you talk about caretaking, uh, caretakers, indigenous caretakers and land defenders can very well. And what I began to do is kind of think about it in a broader sense and looking at like, you know, somebody like Berta Caceres, who uh, was an indigenous land defender who was assassinated stopping a, med a mega project, right? And how uh, the, our indigenous relatives in the Amazon were being hunted by the Bolsonaro government um, because they, they, you know, they represented um, an obstacle to the advancement of capitalism. Uh, and they were targeted during these forest fires that happened, you know, just last year, right? These immense amount of forest fires that were happening. And thinking about that in in, in the context of like, 
how do we converge all of these things? I think indigenous people, especially in this hemisphere, um, have kind of thought about these things and have converged these struggles. We see like the People's Accord in 2020 at Cochabamba, Bolivia, articulating what I would say is a far more radical vision uh, than the Green New Deal of environmental justice and climate justice. And who organized that? Indigenous people did. They 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 drafted, you know, I used to be critical of this framework, but I have a much deeper appreciation of it now understanding the history. But they drafted the rights uh, of nature. They were the ones, it was indigenous people who first came up with that. And so when you see like Washington state or wherever, you know, granting the rights of nature to a river, um, it came from indigenous knowledge and indigenous uh, kind of worldviews and indigenous movements. Those movements were so threatening to U.S. empire that somebody such as Ebo Morales, who is a peasant who doesn't even have a formal education, stood toe to toe with Trump at the United Nations like a year before he was ousted by a military coup that was backed by the United States. Like we have to give some respect to our indigenous brothers and sisters in the South for being the theorists and advancing these struggles. Right. Uh, and we have to see them as connected to what we're doing here. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the Green New Deal. So Giovanna DeChiro asks, can you discuss your analysis of the Red New Deal? There's no Red New Deal. It's just the Red Deal. Um <laughs> My friend Vijay Prashad, he's like, that's just cheeky. And I'm like, I just kind of laughed. And I was like, well, at least you got you, we got you talking about it. Um, the Red Deal isn't a, a kind of like counter platform to the, the Green New Deal. Uh, we just are trying to take the, the vision of it to a much like more advanced place and grounding it specifically in the context of colonialism uh, and environmental colonialism and uh, indigenous knowledge. Right. And we are making the argument that it's not. And just an indigenous issue. And this is the problem with this is like, oh, there's it's the indigenous version. It's the red, you know, it's the red people are coming out with their version. It's not that um, we actually worked in alliance with a lot of non-indigenous people to develop this. This platform actually didn't come. I, I, I'll be honest. I only wrote like five, five paragraphs of the entire thing. The rest of it was written by like um, like indigenous land defenders, uh, community people, like people who don't have academic degrees, but we sat down and studied, we talked to our communities and we developed these things. We developed an, an abolition framework that we understand that police actually hold back environmental justice movements. We understand that the military, um, that we have to defund and like reinvest. Uh, we took a lot of inspiration for the movement for black lives in, in this regard, but also thinking about um, you know, things such as uh, treaties and agreements, right? Oftentimes, and you pointed this out, and I'm now I'm going to have to go back and read Rob's work, but you pointed this out, how there's this like nation to nation relationship. Treaties are often kind of defined that way as this like colonial construct, and it's become hegemonic. And who interprets treaties? We've 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 ceded a monopoly of interpretation to the colonizing uh, state itself, and we oftentimes you know, don't interpret those treaties. But also, like treaties don't have to be with just colonizers or white supremacist mm -hmm. empires, as you call them, Kim. But they can be amongst like everyday people, yeah. right? And like we saw, like um, the Mother Earth Accords, we've seen the just transition principles that come out of IEN um, or the Tar Sands Alliance um, that, you know, the Tar Sands Alliance and the treaty that was signed in Ihangtawan country back in 2011 and the Great Plains Tribal Chairman adopted it. That wasn't between colonizing nation states. That was amongst indigenous people and grassroots people. And so we actually need to reframe how we understand these things. And so the Red Deal is that platform. It's a, it's a, we see it as kind of a treaty amongst um, what we call the humble people of the earth. Right. 
Well, and they use that language a lot more up here. And I, I remember, too, uh, reading in Rob's book, I do think that he talks about the different interpretations that indigenous peoples up here had of treaties, of course, than white people now have the, have of them. And there were some literal, uh, pretty corrupt translation practices, right, mm-hmm. to overwrite, I think, what indigenous people thought they were agreeing to. But they'll often say up here, we are all treaty people. And they do often invoke this language that's more like uh, treaties as kinship agreements as well, which really did not that was weird to me when I first got here because we don't talk about it like that in South Dakota in the same way, right? Um, so anyway, I, I'd have to read his book again, but I think, yeah, you'll find a lot there that's kind of intersecting with the things you're thinking about in the Red Deal. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think this segues good to the next uh, listener question too. Stephen Sheehy asks, could you maybe help me think about locating the current revolution as an anti-racist slash anti-white supremacist revolt within a decolonial or anti-settler colonial framework. Is there anything more we can say about that? Uh, I think you just need to talk about the origins of the police. Um, They arose out of slave patrols, right? And I I remember reading the documents um, about the first, they called themselves the cowboy militia. It was the first law enforcement that existed in a place that later became known as Rapid City, South Dakota. And their job was to basically police Lakota people from leaving the reservation. And so we have to understand that, like you, like you want to reform that system, like it's already been reformed, right, to the present. And so I, I, that would be the only thing I would say is that the police, is, the police origins in this country come from slave patrols and settler militias. Yeah, it seems really clear that abolition is the only way forward. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say earlier, too, this whole project of multiculturalism, that's just more colonialism and racism, right? It's 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 replace replace with their worldview, right? Um, So we still have about uh, 15 minutes and I'm going to come back to a question that I didn't know that I'd have time to ask. And um, you and it's a little kind of academic maybe, or spiritual, quote unquote, which is not a word I like to use. And I'm and I uh, I'm really interested in how we how the words we have in Lakota and Dakota get, I think, mistranslated into, quote unquote, spiritual language. But you seem to resist this concept of future telling or prophesying when well maybe not prophesying but telling the future when you describe Ocheti Shakawin prophecies and I think in particular you were talking about Black Elk that's interesting to me you really seem to resist um the spirit side I think of a spirit material divide that I see imposed by settler colonial thought and I know we've taken that up as indigenous people this language of spirituality but I actually think knowing what little I know about you know the frameworks of my own ancestors and their languages that that's that's really an imposed divide mm-hmm. um, and I wonder if we should be talking about our own knowledges and practices as quote unquote spiritual I think they're deeply material mm-hmm. But I also think there's an agnostic, maybe I'm probably asking you a question and answering it, and we'll see what you mm-hmm. have to say. I think there's a deep agnosticism in, in Dakota and Lakota worldviews. There's a humility. We might understand that particular phenomenon or event or miracle, quote unquote, at some point, but we may not. Not everybody's going to understand. Uh, we don't, there's, a, there, there's just this kind of humility that I think... Um, 
leads us to not have to impose the spirit material divide in the same way. So I'm thinking about the the deeply material practices of praying. And I think you talk about this in the book. You talk about the pipe, right? The chanumpa, and that it's not it might not be praying as much as it was a way to greet a relative. And I've heard uh, quarriers and carvers at Pipestone uh, Monument, where, where the stone is harvested for those pipes, talk about the material practice of what happens with the smoke, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the greeting of, of people and the sharing of a pipe as a way of making relations and making good relations. Um, so there's very material aspects to that. And then I think about the way that I was raised hearing spirits, quote unquote, and my mother sees them, but we don't know what that is. There's a deep agnostic, we don't call them, we might use that language, but we don't think that they're coming from heaven or anything like that. Mm -hmm. We don't know. And I'm not sure we really care, but there's a sense of material engagement. So anyway, I think about all of these things, right, that are so inadequately described in English. And I noticed you avoiding some of these things in your book, or was that just me? And I'm interested. No, no, you're very perceptive. And the reason why, there's a reason why I do it for like, I guess to invoke like Audra Simpson is a form of ethnographic refusal because there are just some things that I'm not allowed to share and I refuse to share them for political reasons. But I also think that while, and I agree with a lot of the things that you're saying, and while they're, you know, like somebody like Vine Deloria Jr., go read Vine Deloria Jr. if you want to learn about spirituality. That that he was a, the, a theologian, you know, and I he speculated on it a lot. And he was, you know, he came from a Christian family, you know, that's awesome, you know. And but I I've never I've never felt comfortable putting those things into words on pages, um, nor have I ever felt comfortable talking about them. But I do think that, and just this is a partial answer to your question, that that material aspect hasn't been explored as much. And what happens when you, it's like, I call it the Native American flute music effect. Uh, As soon as you start talking about spirituality, like flute music just starts playing in white people's brains and they can't like, they can't, anything you say is like just irrelevant afterwards, you know, (laughs) because it it like, they want to over romanticize. They want to, they want us to be spiritual people. Like that's what they see us as. And and that in itself is a form of dehumanization. Right. And so like, and I, us making material claims. If you're a spirit, right. Or you've you're the vanishing Indian on horseback disappearing into the sunset. Oh, poor sad Indians. They're gone. You know, we don't have to turn anything over. (laughs) And yeah, we don't, yeah. All we have is like immaterial claims to things. We just have a spiritual connection to this mountain. Right. And, and like, that's, I mean, like we have these laws around secret sites and like, uh, American Indian religious freedom act. And when has the American religious freedom act actually protected anything from us? The last time it was used in the court of law was to defend hobby lobby, uh, for, for the, from, uh, disallowing or giving them the right to prevent their employees from using their health insurance to get birth control. That was the last time you know, the only time that I, I've ever heard of the American Indian Religious Spirit, uh, I can't even remember the words, American Indian Religious Freedom Act, Air Freedom Fall. Act, right, yeah. that legalized our spirituality and our religion um, yeah. for the first time. It was That was the only time they said, well, if they have the right to use peyote, they have the right to do all these things, uh, then we have the right to deny um, our workers from access to birth control because our religious belief doesn't believe in, you know, contraception or anything or prevention or anything like that. Um, so, but I, I, just to kind of build on that a little bit, I think that you have got me to think more about modes of relationship 
uh, in the material realm. And I don't think that there is, you know, like this idea of like the spirit and the, in the, in the material, that's an, a question I, I'm going to avoid for right now. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I think that like thinking about like, just listening to um, like Arlo Ironcloud and Lisa Ironcloud talk about food sovereignty and how um, our people would sit and watch a buffalo eat. You know, they would eat yucca. They would just chew yucca. They have yucca in there and it helps them digest food. And they would watch animals eat plants that they would go and then harvest. Right. And they also learned that a coyote eats strychnine to strength or not strychnine, arsenic, uh, heavy plants like choke cherries and things like that to actually create a, a, um, a stronger stomach to digest like potentially rotten meat. Mm. That, that is not a kind of like spirit. Like if you want to call that communing with nature, go for it. But like, who has that kind of knowledge and like, who has that kind of knowledge of the land and what it's, what is required to actually be in relationship with that, that particular land. Now we have cows who just, you know, screw up the land. And, you know, and for us, it's like not so much about industrial agriculture in the sense of how those kids, how those cows um, are dying, but it's actually how they're living. Like, where's the concern about that? And I think that's what like Lakota, um, like Lakowi Cho'un is how we say it. It's not a spirituality. It's a way of life. Lakowi Cho'un means the Lakota way of being, I guess. I don't know if that's the correct translation. Um, and Or, you know, we also say, talk about the red road and things like that. And becoming human is a very, very painful process. And there's a philosophy and a humility behind that, that I think, um, you know, Lakota people possess. And, you know, it's, there is a spiritual you know, path that people take and, and spirituality and religion was very fundamental to the, the movement at Standing Rock. And I don't want to diminish that. It's just something that I feel like once you turn that flute music on, you lose, you, you lose something, right? Um, yeah, I'm, also- I'm, I'm working with a, a interdisciplinary group of faculty at the University of Alberta on an Indigenous Peoples and Pandemics course right now. And it's going to be online. And we said no flute music. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to use a tribe called Red, but we're like, oh, that might cost some, some money. <laughs> but uh, exactly, right? Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested. You were say, talking about the observation of animals, right? And, and the knowledge that, that, that luck to people get from that. That's kind of a classic method of observation. And again, Indigenous people have to be portrayed as anti-science, as not doing science, right? Because science is viewed as the uh, the purview of the rational, civilized subject. And the whole investment of settler colonialism is in portraying us as irrational, right? And so we're spiritual, we're not scientific. So... Um, I'm going to go back to another uh, viewer question. It's, uh, they're saying the Red Deal do- goes beyond the scope of the colonial state and a Green New Deal. Could you talk about pathways to create change beyond the scope of the government? And can that kind of revolution be nonviolent? Great question. <laughs> I hate the binary of violent and nonviolent. It's okay. like violence already, <laughs> violence structures our entire reality, whether we like it or not. You know, the state is violent by default. There's no, like, I was watching so many videos online about people who were like taking a knee and some guy got shot like almost point blank range in the head with a tear gas canister. What, what, like, uh, that's a form of violence, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I always remember Kwame Ture or, uh, you know, formerly known as uh, Stokely Carmichael said for like nonviolence to work, you're, you know, the person who's enacting that violence has to have some kind of conscience. And the United States has no conscience. Doesn't mean that we like 
we, we don't, we're not, people don't wake up in the morning. And like I'm going to engage in an act of violent resistance. That's absurd. It's so like, it's actually made in a way to like delegitimize uh, movements, but it's also made to actually make us afraid of defending ourselves. Everyone, every nation on this planet, every group of people has a right to self-defense period. It doesn't matter. You, you, you're not going to like, you're not going to wait for the police to show up if the police are the enemy, right? To defend your house. Like it's, this is this, it's a ridiculous question. And the, the kind of cult around nonviolent stuff, I'm not, I'm not about it. I understand like people are about the philosophy and everything. It's not that I engaged in, a, I don't even own a gun, you know, like I, I refuse I don't to own a gun. I don't even know the genealogy of what people are talking about as nonviolence. Is there, is it a Christian kind of genealogy or? It's, it's a social movement thing. And okay. Um, you know, like I respect people who participated, there's nonviolent direct action, they're trainers yeah. who do this, right. they, they probably wouldn't, they, they would probably agree with what I'm saying right now that it's like, they understand it's a tactic and it's not like a strategy for change because it's like, when you think about this at the end of the day, like all of this wealth has been accumulated and concentrated with immense amounts of violence. And exactly. you, you try to put up one kind of like tepid social Democrat, like Bernie Sanders and look how they react. You know, mm -hmm. I've been re-listening the last few days, the last week, a lot to Angela Davis, who was one of our professors at History of Consciousness, where I did my PhD, and um, but old videos of her, right, when she was much younger, and also um, Malcolm X, and they're right in line with this as well. That's what's resonated with me most, watching mm -hmm. the violence unleashed by the cops, mm -hmm. you know around the United States, in Canada. We've had recent police violence by RCMP this week against an indigenous person, I'm pretty sure, up in Nunavut. So, um, Well, I guess to even expand on that, it's like the Red Deal is a vision of the future that we want to enact. Like there's this idea, like, uh, you know, this we do a lot of this work uh, here in the city and people know us now more we're getting you know like for the 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 kind of community of defense work that we're doing we're protecting our we're trying to protect our black relatives in this moment in time when white you know militias are walking around armed with assault rifles threatening people pointing guns at us you know and people see that and they think that's all we do they don't see that like we have people going out every single day like feeding people on the streets and caretaking because we, that's the kind of community that we want to build in yeah. why can't we get some more goddamn attention on that and that's what's <laughs> happening in south minneapolis right you saw that they some community people commandeered an empty sheraton and they're putting up a bunch of homeless people in there and trying and the owner apparently turned it over we can house people yeah right you can solve homelessness overnight look yep. it's possible yeah so um, this takes us into a, what would make a really great final question because we've got about five minutes left. Fernando Tormos Aponte says, movement for Black Lives organizers have said that their demands for reparations must take place in close consultation with Indigenous peoples. What do you think this process would look like? I've it's thought about this a little bit, not a lot. It's a really good question. Yeah. Um, I... You know, like I, I would say that the the language of reparation reparations needs to be housed in the kind of historical black experience. I agree. And that's I don't see a lot of I, you know, there's maybe you know there's some cases around this, but a lot of indigenous people that's not our demand, but we support it. 
We support yep. it as fundamental to decolonization. And we I think we should say that it is part of decolonization, that we have to understand, like most people think like, oh, the United States didn't become a global superpower until, you know, the, the 20th century or that like monopoly capital, the thing that has colonized the globe um, didn't emanate out of the United States until after World War II. Well, if you look at the history books, in 1840, the United States had, a, had the highest gross domestic product of any nation in the world, right? And it hadn't even, it hadn't even extended itself uh, as far west. How did that happen? How did the, how did the basis of, of capital accumulation happen in this country? It happened because of, of African labor, right? In the form of slavery. And it also happened on indigenous lands. You can trace the rise of the first steam engine being used in a factory system in, in England uh, in, in around this time, around 1840 as well. And that was only possible because in these cotton mills because there was, there was African hands picking cotton on stolen indigenous land. And so the rise of the fossil economy and climate change began because of settler colonialism and began uh, because of the plantation economy and began because of the the uh, the cotton kingdom. And so you can't tell me, you know, you can't tell me that you can disentangle these things neatly, right? And also the fact that many indigenous, not many, several indigenous nations participated in African slavery in the plantation system, the Cherokee nation, you know, the so-called five civilized tribes. Um, and do you think they have a special role to play in the conversation around reparations? I really love what you said about making reparations part of a de- central to a decolonizing project. I get really pissed off when white liberals like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren say, well, what about Native Americans? I'm like, we ain't asking for reparations. <laughs> yeah. We have another framework. Hashtag, hashtag land back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like <laughs> these things are not incompatible for uh, for me anyway. And I think for a lot of indigenous thinkers. So, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Like it's there's a big be, But that becomes the kind of hegemonic framework as if like we can just use money as if money is somehow like going to solve the problem. And reparations, I'm not saying that rep, that's what reparations means, because it's a much deeper and much more transformative project right. than that. So I'm trying to think if we, I mean, it's, I had only begun thinking about it and I was thinking about writing a piece, but I wasn't quite ready yet because I hadn't researched and understood the whole reparations conversations in African-American communities to the degree that I would. And then to think about that in relationship to our frameworks, um, which are not couched in that language, right? So um, I'm just going back to the question again. It must take, what what does it look like? I think they were asking a process question mm-hmm. though. Um, if it takes place in close consultation with indigenous peoples, how do we do that? Um, I think it has to come, it can't come from academics. It has yeah. to come from movement people who are engaged in this. I've, we've begun this conversation, um, like with organizations with like cooperation Jackson, it's hasn't evolved into like a very deep and robust conversation, but it's something that we're interested in because it's like, you have to understand that black folks in this country have been, you know, if you look at land ownership patterns in this country, 97% of privately owned land is, is uh, for, for white, from white people, right? In agricultural land, it's, I think it's much higher than that. Um, so black people have been even excluded from the, the process of becoming like uh, reaping the rewards of settler colonial, colonialism, so to speak, right? And 
to understand like their projects, they're facing a lot of similar issues when it comes to food sovereignty, right? Where is their food coming from? Um, you know, what's the quality of that food and cooperation Jackson, I think is really at the forefront in, in thinking about land restoration, but also uh, food sovereignty for black communities. And they actually call, you know, they use the language of settler colonialism uh, and they actually talk about, um, uh, you know, what does it mean for, um, uh, black people like working the land and what is their relationship to, to native people. And so in that sense, they're more, they're more advanced than we are. And we need to have that serious conversation because it's not like we have to fundamentally disabuse ourselves of the idea of private property, because that's what people, that's where people go to. They're like, Oh, they're going to, you know, they're going to take our land or whatever. And private property is not based on ownership. It's based on exclusion fundamentally. Right. And we have to rethink what our relations to uh, the land itself um, as something that's living and that's something that has to sustain everyone is going to look like. I think there are a lot of a lot more white people, white folks in this country who are going to have to give up more. Right. It, just because the concentration of wealth has, has been predominantly <laughs> amongst white people. And if you look at land ownership patterns, Ted Turner owns more land in our territory than that is the size of my reservation. He owns 200,000 acres of Ochete Shakoni treaty territory. We're not, that's, I'm not taking, we're not taking away land from black people or like poor people. We're taking away land. I'm sorry. Now I'm getting into ex, the conversation of expropriation, <laughs> but I mean, if we're thinking about like land return, that's what we're, we're talking about. And the fact that like, there's, you know, these public, you know, the Bureau of Land Management manages manages all this land, right, for us through the Department of Interior, which manages wildlife, natural resources, and Indians. Um, they they are using it for private gain already, right? And it's as I said before, the uh, the federal lands in this in this, or I should say, public lands in this country, so-called public lands in this country, uh, produce forty percent of of the emissions. Uh, carbon emissions in this country, right? And so this is where we have to begin the conversation. We're not like going to go and kick out like mom and pop farming. Like that's a totally ridiculous. That's like that's white anxiety. That's the the, yeah. the great placement. The one percent simply can't hoard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we're, we're talking about the one percent, right? Yeah. And even even among that, it's like the point zero zero one percent. Like yeah. Bezos is on track to become the world's first uh, trillionaire. Uh, yeah, we're coming back to so many things we've already touched on. Um, we never mentioned COVID nineteen. Oh wow! <laughs> and but I, there's it's so much implied in a lot of what we're talking about, right? So, um, but you know, I think uh, it's interesting watching the media coverage, right? People are clearly uh, somebody. Somebody was saying on Twitter, I'm such a Twitter junkie. Somebody was saying, um, well, what about you know all the masks and people aren't social distancing? And other people were saying. Uh, it's true, but what's killing us most this week, right? Mm. Um, and and so the the kind of stakes of people being out there together. So is there any kind of final comment you want to make before I do our closing announcements? And thank um, you to all the listeners too for your questions. They were fantastic. I think like it, it we should ask this question about COVID nineteen, and I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, but I, I mean, you teach a course on this on uh, like on. Um, epidemiology right and i think like the idea that like native people died off because of germs is very prevalent in this country it actually eases the conscience <laughs> of a lot of people at night that like it wasn't actually these structures um, that that killed people but if you think about like the u.s backed uh, that was once the formerly u.s backed saudi war in yemen that was happening and all the people who were dying of cholera 
they weren't dying. Be, most of the people weren't dying because of bombs. They were dying because of the war conditions that destroyed the healthcare infrastructure. And if you think about that in terms of the kind of genocidal war that was waged against us, most of us, you know, didn't die through the actual act of killing of person killing person, but actually died as, as a result of the conditions that were created by war. And if we think about that in terms of why black and indigenous people are more affected by COVID-19, it's because of these pre-existing conditions. And if you think about somebody like, and you you tweeted this, if you think about the so-called pre-existing conditions of George Floyd, that the, the coroner said were led to the cause of his death and not asphyxiation. Or if you think about the pre-existing conditions of Andrea Circlebear, who was the first woman to die in federal prison, was a native woman. Um, she, her pre-existing condition was the fact that she was pregnant and she had just given birth and she died of COVID-19, right? Or you think about like Zachary Bearheels, who were coming up on the third year anniversary of his murder. Um, he had a, a so-called like pre-existing condition um, that resulted in excited delirium, right? After he was tased over uh, um, 12 times and then punched 13 times in the head, right? Um, this idea of like a pre-existing condition that we just die, more, we're more susceptible to natural causes of death is complete, like is a complete fallacy. And we can see that in the way that even the police and, and the state itself justifies the killing of large sections of this population, 100,000 people have died of COVID-19 in this country. And they're, you know, they're, I, 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 I have a hard time, like, understanding that in my head and like why there hasn't been such a more backlash. And I think that what we're seeing right now is partially because of that, that great loss that we've all just experienced. Yeah, it was just, it was unbelievable, but not right. So heartbreaking. This coroner coming out with that assessment of George Floyd. What? The cop kneeled on his neck for how many minutes? I just, but you know, you're surprised, but you're not, right? Because you see the kind of corruption and lies, you know, that are, that are part of the defense of the settler state and its, and its state violence all the time. So anyway, I should have left it on your note because you were, <laughs> you've given me one, Nick, I'm just going to say one final thing. You know, I don't think a lot about the discipline of history, and but but I'm like this. This is why we need indigenous historians and yeah. black historians. Indi uh, I'll say this last last <laughs> last sentence. U.S. historians have deprived the rest of the world from accurately understanding the true nature of the United States, and that if if the United if the U.S. historians are guilty of one crime, it's that crime. That's great. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for being with us. And thanks, everybody, for listening. I just have a few announcements before we close. I want to remind people that if you're in a position to make a donation, no matter how small, please consider giving to Haymarket, Verso, and Red Nation. Please sign up for the Red Nation podcast and the Media Indigenous podcast. And thanks to all three of those organizations for organizing this live stream. Thanks to everyone who joined the call. And we hope to see you all soon at future Haymarket Books live streams. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day, Nick. Thanks, Kim. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.